Hello, my name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I have the pleasure of getting together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the month ahead. You can expect a focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, we will focus on the Russia-Africa Summit in St. Petersburg, high inflation in the UK, which is set to dominate the Chancellor's Mansion House speech, and the NATO summit in Lithuania. First off, I have Magnus Oberman with me, an associate in our CEE and Russia practice, to talk about the Russia-Africa summit. Welcome, Magnus. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, so from July the 26th, Russia is going to host the second edition of its Russia-Africa summit. As far as I know, this has already been postponed twice, once because of COVID and then again from the end of last year to this month. When Russia hosted its first edition in 2019, 43 African leaders attended. So it will be quite interesting to see how this second edition compares. Obviously, the geopolitical setting is a very different one. First off, tell me a bit more about the summit, Magnus. What has Russia planned and why should we be paying attention? Yeah, very well. So as you said, this is the second time that Russia's President Putin is convening African uh, leaders in Russia to discuss topics of mutual interest this time. Uh, topics are heavily focused around security and so-called sovereign development. Uh, but also technology and science cooperation. The, the, the summit shows that Russia has uh, an increased uh, interest in Africa that actually predates the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. As you said, the first meeting took place in 2019 in Sochi. Back then, uh, 43 heads of state attended this time. We'll probably see a, a slightly a lower number, but, but nevertheless, um, an impressive number, I think, given the geopolitical context. And I think it is worth noting that Russia's increased engagement in Africa uh, really predates uh, the war. But of course, in a way, it also shows the limits uh, of Western efforts to isolate Russia. And beyond that, it also shows that African countries pursue their foreign policies independently from global trends like US-China rivalry or Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. I think there has been a very interesting uh, comment from Lavrov not too long ago that the US is trying to sabotage the summit. Instead, it still looks like it's going to be relatively popular. I've heard that about half of African leaders might be in attendance. What is also interesting is that there's definitely been an uptick in um, so-called Africa plus one summits over the last few years. The US, China, the EU has all have all hosted their own variants. I'm curious to hear your take on what you think Russia can give Africa. Why is Russia an attractive partner to Africa when there is such choice for who to work with? I think it's right what you said, that there's a lot of summits where African leaders come together with the Europeans, the Americans, the Russians. But it is uh, important to note also that African countries are not only uh, the objects, but also subjects of international relations. And they have uh, the choice between uh, many different uh, partners. And Russia in particular is an interesting and attractive partner, especially in security cooperation. It is the biggest arms exporter to Africa. And in some way, it can provide more effective, quote unquote, um, partnership to combat terrorism uh, than, than the West or, or the UN. At least that's the Russia promise. And Russia does not demand conditionality, um, meaning that 
maybe cares less about certain countries' human rights records. It provides weapons uh, to countries that have been uh, denied weapons at, uh, from the US, uh, such as Kenya. And all these things make Russia quite attractive. And of course, China and Russia are seen as alternatives uh, to the traditional partners in the West, post-colonial uh, partners, nevertheless. We should uh, not forget about that. And they have a reputation of treating African countries as equals and without prejudice, whether that's true or not. But it's definitely playing out in Russia's favor. I think you can see some of that um, reflected in the comments that have com um, come out of South Africa, which has been very strong in pushing back against the US, bullying it, which was the, the quote of their Minister of Foreign Relations when they felt the US was trying to dictate South Africa's relationship with Russia. So there's certainly a greater element of agency of this multilateral alignment strategy really starting to pay a dividend. There was an interesting example recently with the African Peace Initiative to um, both Russia and Ukraine. Definitely. That, I think that's the perfect example that shows that uh, African diplomacy has uh, has gained a prominence. Um, unfortunately, this African peace mission did not yield any concrete results. Maybe that was also asked too much, given the very different positions of Russia and, and Ukraine and the difficulty to negotiate uh, a peace deal at this point. Of course, also quite symbolic that African leaders are traveling to Europe to help uh, make peace and not the other way around, which uh, I think in some ways would be the more traditional picture. I'd like to pivot slightly and touch on something slightly different. It's quite uh, interesting in the current context. And I'd like to talk about the Wagner Group. They've obviously been in the news and they've been active all across Africa for years. I'd be curious to hear whether you think the uh, Wagner mutiny might change um, Russia's involvement in Africa at all, and if so, how? Well, the mutiny has definitely changed uh, Wagner's presence and Wagner's activities in Russia, first and foremost. And it is an open question at the moment whether there will be a big change to Wagner's activities in Africa. I personally think that Russia will remain involved in African uh, politics and in the half dozen countries that uh, Wagner used to be active. Uh, whether that is in the form of Wagner itself or another Uh, Wagner-style entity um, that remains to be seen. But I think the the market uh, is, is too lucrative for, for Wagner to give up. And also, uh, Russia would, uh, Russia's reputation would suffer if uh, all of a sudden uh, the Russian uh, mercenaries are withdrawn and uh, African leaders that have relied on their services to provide security Would, would be alone because uh, in, in some cases um, uh, they have uh, sent Western or international uh, UN uh, security missions, uh, have sent them home. Um, and if uh, the Russians now withdraw, uh, that would certainly not help Russia's reputation in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be quite a difficult situation for countries like Mali if they suddenly found themselves without the, the Wagner Group, which they've come to rely on relatively heavily to support their, their various governments. I also wanted to touch on something else that's related to the summit, but actually goes beyond it, because that summit is going to be an interesting and quite visible show of how much support Russia still has in Africa and how much of a draw a summit like that can be in the current context. But it's not actually the only summit with an interesting Africa-Russia element to it, because in August, and we're going slightly beyond uh, the current month ahead, but it is interesting because we're going to have the BRICS nations um, meeting in South Africa, Russia obviously being a member of BRICS. Do you have a quick take on that summit in the Russia-Africa context? 
that sound is very interesting as well because it will take place in uh, Johannesburg and it will not be moved uh, to China, uh, which some people had expected given that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has issued an uh, arrest warrant against um, Russian President Putin. And there was some speculation whether moving the summit to China would make it easier for, for Putin to attend given that South Africa could be more likely to uh, arrest Putin upon his arrival. Um, but now the, the the summit has not been moved. It's not clear yet if if Putin will attend. And the South African uh, main opposition party has uh, said that if he comes, he should be arrested. Um, but it is not clear if that will be the case. And uh, it is it is at least um, uh, possible that uh, Putin will attend this meeting in Johannesburg, despite the ICC uh, arrest warrant. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting intersections between uh, Russia and Africa and various African countries there. Personally, I think it's going to be highly unlikely that Putin is going to get arrested. Africa, South Africa has previously refused to arrest a visiting foreign leader who was indicted by the ICC when um, Omar al-Bashir of Sudan visited, and I think it was 2015. But certainly an interesting one to watch. Both the Russia Africa summit. We're going to keep it, we're going to be keeping our eyes on how many leaders will actually attend, and then next month on what's going to happen with the BRICS summit. Thanks very much, Magnus. Pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Next up, we have the Mansion House speech on July the tenth. UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is set to make his annual speech, where he's expected to unveil pension reforms that he hopes are going to unlock new investment in UK assets. But it's really hard to imagine him getting away without talking about the UK's persistently high inflation rate. Today to talk about this, I'm joined by GC's UK Politics and Policy Director, Lila Housen-Smith, and our Global Macro Associate, Ed King. And they're going to tell us more. So first off, Lila, tell me a bit about Mansion House speeches. Who gives them? What do they mean? What are they? Why is this one important? Of course. So the first thing to say is that this is an annual set piece intervention by the Chancellor. So it happens every year around this time. And it's typically an opportunity both to address the kind of wider macroeconomic landscape, but also um, for the government today to set out uh, their vision for the economy. So when Rishi Sunak was himself making the speech as Chancellor two years ago, he was particularly focused on um, reforms to financial services, many of which have now been delivered um, in legislation, but also kind of questions around post-Brexit competitiveness. Um, Why this one kind of feels particularly important is clearly the wider macroeconomic backdrop that you mentioned. So not only um, extremely high inflation, but high interest rates and clearly also um, higher mortgage rates. But also we're 18 months out potentially from the next general election. So really, um, this government is kind of in a place where they're both handling a difficult economic situation, but also really required to set out what their retail offer or their kind of um, substantive agenda is going to be in that remaining 18 months um, that it can then go out and sell to the electorate. Mm, let's stick with that difficult economic uh, Let's stick with that difficult economic situation for a little while because Lots of countries in Europe are suffering from high inflation. Ed, can you tell me a little bit more about why the UK is different or is it different? High inflation, as you say, is not a new problem for Europe following the dual supply shock of COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine, which caused energy and food prices to soar. But headline inflation is now receding in most economies, except for the UK. Despite some good news that strawberries and cream at Wimbledon this year are the same price as they were last year, 
the UK inflation story is pretty bleak. Headline inflation stayed at 8.7% year-on-year in May, well above the Bank of England's 2% target rate, and core inflation actually rose further to 7.1%. This is the highest in the G7. The main drivers of inflation have generally shifted from an imported goods issue to services, which may increase its persistence. Interestingly, one of the fastest rising categories in UK inflation was recreation and culture, meaning some people have even gone as far as blaming Beyonce's UK tour for high inflation. That's an interesting one. Uh, is it Beyonce alone or you think there's some other, some other driving factors there? That's a, that's a little bit far-fetched, I'm afraid. Uh, instead, there are two main reasons for the UK's sticky situation. The first is Brexit. Reduced competition between firms means there's greater pricing power in value chains, while lower trade intensity is further reducing innovation and productivity, already concerningly low in the UK. Brexit-related holdups at UK ports also continue to contribute to high input costs, and tougher post-Brexit migration rules have created a shortage of lower-skilled workers in sectors like hospitality previously often filled by EU workers. This puts upward pressure on wages and prices. The second reason is related to that, and it's the unique labour market in the UK. Labour force participation rates have suffered from early retirement and record levels of long-term sickness. In fact, the UK is the only developed economy to see the share of working-age citizens outside the labour market continue to rise after the pandemic. The lack of available staff to fill near-record job vacancies could therefore force employers to increase wages with potential to fuel inflation even further. And there's already evidence that nominal wages are growing faster in the UK than elsewhere in Europe. So while the IMF might have presented evidence that wage price spirals are historically rare, the UK's unique structural issues place it most at risk of tipping into one. And this is a significant concern for the Bank of England. Very interesting, Ed. So uh, an interesting mix uh, of factors. Beyonce may be a smaller factor, but Brexit and the labour market story is certainly really interesting. And I imagine um, the UK is not enjoying the label of highest inflation in the G7. So what have policymakers been doing to to intervene? The Bank of England has already raised interest rates at the fastest pace since 1990. Uh, And in June, it implemented a further 50 basis point rise. This was larger than many had anticipated and took the policy rate up to 5% from 0.1% back in December 2021. But there are more rate hikes to come. Given the recent tendency for inflation data to exceed expectations, the Bank of England wants to restore some credibility by committing to further monetary tightening. This was evident in both the June meeting and Governor Andrew Bailey's comments during central bank meetings in Sintra just last week. The markets now expect interest rates to peak at about 6.25%. So it sounds like inflation is here to stay for the foreseeable future and that the Bank of England is committed to keep hiking. Can you tell me a bit about um, what sort of impact that's going to have on the economy before we turn to Lila? Sure. The, The significant risk is that the Bank of England could tighten too much. Tightening as far as 6% would weigh on economic activity in the short term, and the UK economy is already forecast to grow just 0.2% this year. 
There's already evidence that monetary tightening is constraining credit demand and credit supply in the UK. And the economic implications of further tightening could be exacerbated by a UK mortgage crisis. The impact on the mortgage market has already been dramatic with the average two-year fixed deal trebling to 6%. And with the large majority of outstanding UK mortgages on a fixed rate contract and many up for renewal, future household spending is particularly vulnerable. But basically, a recession increasingly looks like the only path to take in order to control inflation. Thank you very much, Ed. So everything that Ed has just said means that it sounds nearly impossible for Jeremy Hunt not to touch on inflation and the broader economic situation in this speech. He can't possibly just be talking about pension reforms. Lila, what are the politics of all of this? How damaging do you think this current situation is for the government? So I think kind of recent sentiment analysis suggests that, you know, despite the government's effort to uh, get voters um, and households to blame Others, they ultimately are blaming the government for high inflation and as that's kind of received by consumers, higher prices. Um, I think part of that is because the government ultimately sort of took responsibility for it, in part by making one of Rishi Sunak, the prime minister's five pledges, halving inflation. So it almost it was kind of a forced own goal in the sense that it didn't have to, it doesn't control monetary policy. And ultimately, it could have kind of pointed to the role of the Bank of England um, in setting interest rates. But instead, because uh, Rishi Sunak made it a kind of clear target of his government, he began to take responsibility for it. I think there's some evidence that they're now kind of distancing themselves from that approach. Uh, they're looking to kind of individual sectors and retailers to try and kind of control prices and and um, ultimately regulators in those sectors. So we saw that this week um, with intervention um, requested by the CMA in petrol prices, but also um, kind of more generally by the government kind of pointing to the role of um, high street retailers and particular, particularly supermarkets um, in keeping down prices and uh, not kind of maintaining margins at, at its existing level. Meanwhile, politically, they're kind of using the um, high inflation rate as a um, kind of stick to uh, bash Labour with, um, because what they're suggesting is that Labour's kind of higher spending pledges in particular, the 28 billion that they'd suggested that um, they would spend on um, green investments would actually be inflationary and therefore um, pointing to the fact that their own approach of regulatory reform and fiscal restraint is much more sensible in the current context. So they're trying to blame others, but it's difficult. It definitely sounds it, especially with that very eye-catching Rishi Sunak promise to half inflation. And you've already made the point that monetary policy is, of course, being set by the Bank of England rather than the government. And you've mentioned pressure on retailers and supermarkets. But is there anything else in the government's toolbox that they could use? So the thing we saw them using kind of a lot kind of from the end of last year was um, basically pay, public sector pay restraint, trying to hold the nerve, their nerve in negotiations with the unions over uh, public sector pay rises. Ultimately, that's been a reasonably successful tactic for some for some areas, but ultimately, um, you know, on on a number of areas, they've had to concede because of the impact of strikes on kind of wider uh, UK productivity and also kind of the optics and politics of being seen to um, kind of be overseeing a uh, an economy that is not able to kind of provide vital public services. So that tactic hasn't really worked. Something else they're clearly kind of continuing to look at is what they can do on the supply side of the economy. And 
um, particularly in terms of raising wider productivity. Um, so they continue to focus on um, uh, addressing labour market inactivity post-COVID. Not only is kind of uh, one striking feature of the UK economy that inflation is particularly high, but also um, that we haven't um, yet returned to pre-COVID employment rates. Um, and that's something the government's been trying to address um, through an intervention on issues like childcare, um, but also um, through kind of um, health MOTs, which are encouraging individuals back to work. The success of that to date has been reasonably um, limited. And I think the reality of particularly kind of intervention on the supply side of the economy is it's going to take um, a bit longer to 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 feed through. And so it doesn't really solve uh, the current um, issues. Thank you very much, Lila. I'd like to quickly go back to something you said previously, which is about the Conservatives saying that um, Labour's approach would actually be inflationary. So I'd be curious to hear your take on whether you agree might Labour's approach differ from what the Conservatives are currently doing? How might they try to manage inflation? So I think they're very conscious of the current um, conservative kind of attack line around not only fiscal competence, which is kind of the standard attack line uh, that we've seen um, successive conservative governments use against the Labour Party um, in, a, in the pre-election period, but also this kind of question around Labour potentially creating further inflationary pressure. Um, I think they're trying to address that by one, scaling back some of their spending commitments, but also suggesting that they might only take effect over longer time horizons. So that's what we saw them do um, with the 28 billion. Where Labour does kind of have some greater optionality or kind of potential to suggest that they can um, kind of create solutions to this is that they kind of, one, have slightly more credibility on some of these kind of productivity issues. Um, they're due to make a kind of um, big uh, intervention this week on education and skills. Um, and clearly that's kind of part of the productivity problem for the UK economy. And I think there's a potential there that um, it's not so much kind of that they immediately solve that issue, but that they have slightly more, there's slightly more belief in their ability to solve it. And similarly, on kind of the wider supply side piece, um, Labour is increasingly majoring on planning reform. Um, and I think that's kind of, in, again, they have kind of greater credibility there because there are less political tensions on the Labour side around planning reform, but also because there is just that sense that they might be a bit more radical, um, whereas the Conservatives, I think, kind of as a result of a number of years in government, are just not seen um, to be able to address those kind of supply side challenges that that Labour can present a more easy solution to. Interesting. So we're definitely going to keep our eyes on the educational skills news that are supposed to come out of Labour shortly. And I'm sure this is not going to be the last we hear about how different parties will manage inflation as we head towards a general election next year. Thanks very much, Lila, and pleasure talking to you. And next up, last but not least, we have our third segment of the day the NATO Leaders Summit, which is going to take place on July the 11th and 12th in Vilnius in Lithuania. The summit coincides with um, the war in Ukraine entering a really critical phase with Kiev's counteroffensive and, of course, the Wagner mutiny, which we've already touched on, so quite a bit of growing instability in Moscow. But it's also an interesting inflection point for NATO because leaders agreed a new strategic concept document in Madrid, which argued for an increased focus on defense and deterrence, identified Russia as the most significant and direct threat to the alliance, and also mentioned China for the first time in an official NATO document. To discuss all of that, I have John Garvey with me, the Practice Director for the International Politics and Policy Practice. Hi, John. Hi, as well. 
Right. Before we get into the policy issues, I wanted to ask you a brief question on personalities. Because there were rumors that the Secretary General, Jens uh, Stoltenberg, would be stepping down at the summit. Um, do you know if that's still the case? Uh, so as of today, um, we're recording on the 6th of July, Stoltenberg has now uh, effectively confirmed that he will stay on for another year, um, which means that he will at a minimum do an unprecedented nine-year term. He took office in 2014. Uh, it's, it's quite an interesting development because uh, there has there was quite a lot of speculation before that his job could be wrapped up in the horse trading over EU top jobs. In the end, that hasn't proved the case. Uh, everyone, as always, has said we're not doing any lobbying behind the scenes. This is all, uh, this is all perfectly consensual process. Not entirely sure that's the case. From what I've heard, the US was uh, pretty strongly in favour of him staying on for all of the obvious reasons of maintaining stability at a time of conflict, not having uh, a new face coming in right in the middle of uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. Interesting, from a UK perspective, there was some speculation that Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, might uh, make a pitch for the job. He did actually say earlier this year that it would be, quote-unquote, a good job, but he really didn't pick up any public support from uh, any of the major players. So that possibly says something about uh, where the UK stands in terms of uh, its repute within NATO, not maybe quite as high as some of the UK government would like to believe that it is. Interesting. So Ben Wallace has to wait at least another year for Jens Stoltenberg to potentially step down. Then uh, let's move on to the policy issues. You've already mentioned the um, Russia-Ukraine war and obviously, Ukraine is going to be one of the biggest topics facing the summit. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what you think Ukraine's prospects are for NATO membership. And if the prospects look um, bleak, are there any other guarantees or any other assistance that NATO might provide that it hasn't provided yet? So this really is a live debate, and it's probably going to be the single biggest issue at, uh, at the conference. And it's fair to say that there are a lot of different views swirling around about this. So the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kubela, uh, warned last week that it would be quite unquote suicidal not to accept Ukraine into NATO after the war with Russia is over. Uh, President Zelensky has taken a bit more of a moderate line. He said last week that I emphasize once again, we understand during the war, we cannot become a member of NATO, but we must be confident that after the war, we will be. Now, what confidence actually means is a very contested space. Realistically, I think the maximum that the summit is going to do is provide some kind of strong signal that membership is definitely on the table and that there is a clear path towards that. But there are real divisions within NATO about how to frame that offer. So the US, Germany and France were very cautious about repeating uh, the Bucharest Declaration of 2008. So this was a declaration which effectively said, Ukraine will ultimately be part of NATO, but it didn't offer any practical steps of how to get there. Uh, Poland and the Baltics, Russia's near neighbours, have been arguing very vociferously that Russia can't be uh, can't be granted a, an effective veto over the process. Ukraine, for everything it's done, for everything it's suffered, Ukraine obviously deserves this. I think. I think no one no one would question that, but the US, the French, the German position is really based on this idea that just uh, just dangling the prospect without giving you the clear pathway is really self-defeating. So a lot of this comes down to uh, 
comes down to the NATO treaty and Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which insists on collective defence. So a number of allies have said that it is only possible for Ukraine to be granted membership or even a pathway to membership after Russian troops have left Ukrainian territory. Otherwise, you would trigger the Article 5 commitment. The obvious problem with that is what is Ukraine's territory? It's one thing um, if we're talking about retreating from the Donbass, it's obviously an entirely different thing if you're talking about Crimea. So really, a lot of this hinges on definitions and whether some kind of fudge can be worked through. But I would expect us to come out of this summit with something that resembles a plan towards membership. It's very interesting. And I'm sure Zelensky and everyone in Ukraine will be watching this very, very closely because there is this huge division among NATO members on how the path forward could be could be charted. But Ukraine is actually not the only country um, that we should be talking about on the topic of membership, because we also have Sweden. Do you think we might see Sweden's membership application um, signed off at the summit? Pretty much everyone hopes that will be the case. And this has been a really frustrating process, not just for Sweden, but for the rest of the NATO membership. Because Turkey and really President Erdogan personally has been the person holding this process to hostage over the last year. So... Finland Finland and Sweden put in joint application. Finland has finally been accepted as of a couple of months ago. But Erdogan is still demanding that Stockholm extradite individuals with ties to the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, uh, and do more to prevent PKK rallies in Sweden before he signs the process off. I think I think it probably will come to pass. But the thing that's really interesting about this is how resilient Erdogan has been to US pressure, even um, including Congress saying that uh, they would make the sale of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey conditional on this application being signed off. Erdogan, despite that, despite the fact that he's been re-elected as president, is still saying no. And that says something very interesting about how emboldened he feels to for, Ch- for Turkey to chart its own path despite pressure from you know, all the other NATO allies. I fully agree. I think it has been fascinating to watch Erdogan, even post-election, to really stick to his guns. And it's a similar question to what you raised previously about who gets to have a veto over membership. And of course, we're saying Russia shouldn't have a veto over Ukraine's membership. Of course, isn't a, a NATO member, whereas Turkey is a NATO member. So very interesting how difficult it has been to even get agreement among the different countries that are already members of the alliance. I um, want to move this to a slightly different topic now and talk about spending, which is always a a fun topic, especially in this context. Have we seen any big changes in narrative here since Madrid? So I think think this is going to be another really big issue coming out of the conference. And it's one where, again, you might see some tension between the US and Europe. So Uh, It was actually in 2014 uh, at the Wales summit that members pledged once again to spend 2% of GDP on defence. Nine years later, only seven of NATO's 30 members do that. That's the US, UK, Greece, Poland and the Baltics. Germany and Italy currently only spend about 1.5% of GDP and France only spends about 1.9%. What Stoltenberg has said is that he is going to go into this conference pushing for... um, 
2% to be a floor, not a ceiling. But there's really a big question of how um, realistic that looks, because you've got to remember that the levels that we are seeing now incorporate vastly increased levels of military spending through most of those countries, uh, most of the countries in the alliance in one way or another supporting Ukraine, but they're still not hitting 2%. And I think the biggest, uh, the biggest question or the biggest anomaly within that is Germany. Germany, um, as of last year, is going through its site and vendor, its changed role in the world, its acceptance that it is going to be more of a military power. But what does that mean in practice? There are a lot of people out there saying, we really haven't actually seen much evidence of this spending yet. One of the really fascinating things, and this is where French and uh, French and German tensions really come to the fore, is that the one area where Germany has actually um, allocated a significant amount of money, 10 billion euros, in fact, from this site and vendor, which is supposed to amount to about 100 billion euros ultimately, is on the purchase of US F-35 fighter jets. That rankles with France because France has been um, France has been pushing for quicker progress on combined um, French and German French and German um, uh, fighter jet project, the FCAS. So again, this goes to the heart of uh, the French concern that actually you're not going to have strategic autonomy in Europe unless you have truly autonomous um, European defence. Germany would say, well, the capabilities weren't there. But this also goes to the point that, you know, the US is very keen to uh, to cement NATO as the main fighting force in the North Atlantic area. And of course, um, underpinning this whole debate about government spending on defence is the economic situation. We've got huge pressure on government budgets. Governments are cutting spending left, right and centre. So how much governments will be willing to allocate to defence or able to allocate to defence in that setting is uh, kind of makes that question even more pertinent. Um, as a last question, I want to get back to something um, we mentioned in the intro that China was mentioned for the first time in an official NATO document at the last gathering in Madrid. So do you think there's going to be any discussion of NATO's role in the Indochina area this time around? I, I do. And again, this is an area where you are going to see some tension between um, the Europeans, particularly the French and the US. So the US have been pushing very hard since that new concept document was agreed at the Madrid summit last year for NATO to have a more explicit role in Indochina, more explicit Indo role in Indochina really translates into a more, uh, more aggressive role, I think you can say, towards, towards China, or more aggressive posture. Really interesting. This summit, uh, the leaders of Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea have all been invited. And that, in fact, mirrors what happened at the G7 summit in Hiroshima. So you can make a good argument that what the US has been trying to do through the G7, essentially increase economic resilience, economic security vis-a-vis -vis China, but also agree measures like uh, the prohibition on the export of advanced semiconductor chips. They're now trying to do the same with NATO. So there's kind of process of institutional mirroring going on there. Um, one of the proposals, one of the few concrete proposals on the table, actually, is that NATO also opens um, a satellite office in Tokyo, which would be its first sort of permanent presence, I think, outside 
the traditional North Atlantic area. France is very much opposed to this, um, not only because it thinks the focus should be more on the North Atlantic, but also because it thinks that going down this route is basically a red rag to China. It's, it's the kind of policy that is basically going to have basically going to escalate tensions rather than do anything to quell them. So very interesting where all of that comes out. But I think um, I think that we're probably heading in one direction, and we are going to see more of this kind of institutional mirroring between NATO, uh, the G7, and other economic organisations. Sounds like we have an absolutely fascinating summit um, to watch in the next few weeks. Tensions between NATO members over questions like Ukraine, Sweden, spending, China. So we'll be keeping a close eye. Thanks very much, John. Thank you. On this note, we are at the end of this episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. And we're clearly looking at a very interesting month of July. We're going to be able to make a call about how much of a draw working with Russia still is for African governments at the Russia-Africa Summit. We'll keep an eye on how the UK Chancellor will navigate high inflation in his Mansion House speech. And we have a NATO summit in Lithuania, where members are going to discuss a number of issues that are absolutely fundamental to the future trajectory of the alliance. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. So thank you, Magnus, at Lila and John, and thanks to you for listening. 